0: Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This week's guest on the Plant Proof podcast is Australian Rules Football, or otherwise known as the AFL, champion player, Job Watson. Job, son of AFL three-times premiership player, Tim Watson, played 220 games for the Essendon Football Club. To put this in perspective, the Essendon Football Club is equivalent to what the Dallas Cowboys are to the NFL, or Manchester United to the English Premier League. They are one of the biggest clubs in what is certainly Australia's biggest professional sport. During Job's career, he won three club best and fairest and was twice named an All-Australian player, which is awarded to the best players across the competition each year, and in 2012 polled the most votes in the Brownlow Medal, which is the highest individual award within Australian rules football. On top of that, he captained Essendon for six years and won the AFL Best Captain Award in 2012. Job's career certainly had its high and low moments and most notably the low point was the doping scandal which he found himself right in the middle of when the majority of the Essendon team was banned for the 2016 season for breaching the doping regulations during their 2012 season. Imagine the entire Manchester United team was being accused of breaching the drug or doping regulations. That's what happened with the Essendon Football Club and during this year Job was their captain and best player. During this podcast, Job opens up about how he was initially introduced to football, his early days at the Essendon Football Club as a youngster trying to forge his own path, the doping scandal and in particular what supplement they were alleged to have taken and the toll the entire saga took on himself, his family and teammates. His feelings towards handing back his 2012 Brandlow medal, how he spent his time during his year of suspension his inspiration behind returning for one final year, and then finally, what he is up to today. Job is an incredibly down-to-earth and humble guy, speaks from the heart, and in this podcast, shares with us how he overcame what can only be described as an earth-shattering experience, and came out the other side stronger, more motivated, and with greater perspective on life. Job Watson, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. We have a, a ton of content to cover today and I'm super excited to share your story with the Plant Proof community.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: I think a, a great place to start is to, to really understand where it all began for you and what, what better place than sort of understanding where you grew up and what your interests were as a child.
1: Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, I was born in Melbourne and My father had played um, for Essendon, had a long career for Essendon. And so, you know, my earliest memories were all about being around the club and um, growing up in sort of that football environment. And and that was sort of normal for me, you know, being in the rooms before and after games and getting into trouble and running around and getting into mischief. And I think that, um, you know, I was was fortunate that uh, I was, you know, given that insight, I guess, and, and had that exposure to, you know, what, uh, I guess the a footy world is like, and for a young boy who loves sport, you know, it was, it was almost like a dream come true. And and so there I have some really fond memories of, of growing up around football and, and, and sport in general was sort of what I loved to do. And I guess the older I got wasn't until sort of I was about 16 or so that I thought, oh, you know, like this might be an opportunity to take football a bit more seriously and, and hopefully um, turn it into a profession. At sixteen or, or through high school, who are you playing sort of junior football for? Yeah, so I played up until about. Uh, I grew up in Sandringham, so just near the beach in Bayside there, and played for the local Sandringham Zebras, as we were called. And and then when I went to, to school, I focused more on on school football and and really loved the whole. Junior football and the community-based element of football, and kids that I'd grown up the local primary school, we still played together in the same teams. And then the thing that I I look fondly back on about my time playing for uh, school football was that I was playing with the same guys who had been in in classes with since Year Five. So we sort of grew up all all through it together. And then you know, when when you get a bit older, it starts to get a little bit more serious. But it was really a fun time, you know, playing with with your mates, and and that was what. Know, footy was for me for a long part of my formative years. Yeah. You mentioned at 16, you sort of started to,
0: to think of you know potentially playing in the AFL and taking things to the next level. What were your sort of key goals and what, what did you know you needed to achieve in that 16 to 18-year-old period in order to be, to be drafted and get a look in the AFL system?
1: I think that I was probably fortunate that I had, you know, dad had played football at the highest level for a long time. So he's had a lot of knowledge. And, and as I guess all fathers do at some point in time, they, they give some fatherly advice. And, and he, me being a bit of a headstrong 16 year old, I thought I knew everything. And And he said to me, listen, if you really want to, you know, work on, on making football a career, then you're going to have to, you know, you have to get a lot fitter and you're going to have to work a lot harder than what you are. And, And so that was sort of gave me, I guess, an insight into what I needed to do. And and I was a bit of bit stubborn there for a while. And you know, like all teenagers, you think you know everything. So I it took there was a little bit of resistance and pushback. But then I decided that it was something that I really wanted to do, and and I was prepared to put in the work to do it. And so when I was sixteen, I started to train a lot harder than I'd ever had before, and. And I found that by putting in more effort, the rewards were, were there and I started playing at a better level and higher level. And I guess that was, you know, dad was the instigator into sort of fueling the fire. And and at that stage, did you, like, so you, were you sort of in the
0: mindset, yeah, this is guaranteed, I'm going to play AFL?
1: No, nothing like that. I did it because I liked it. You know, it was enjoyable for me and I was passionate about it, but the idea that I was, I was never the best or anything like that. I, I, like I had talent, but I wasn't, I guess, sort of one of the elite players in the competition or anything like that. So for me, it was more about I, I had the belief, I had self-belief that I, I thought I was good enough, but I knew that I had holes in my game and, and I was prepared to work on them rather than sort of sticking my head in the sand.
0: And were you coming through the sort of traditional TAC Cup model I believe that's what it's called. Yep. Did you come through that and, and get drafted as a, an 18-year-old?
1: Yeah. So I played in my last year at high school, played a couple of games for the TSC Cup. It was mainly focused on playing, finishing off my school footy and it was really important to me to play with those guys that I'd grown up with and and to try and be successful with them. And then uh, halfway through uh, my final year at school, Essendon uh, wrote a letter to me and said that they were going to take me on the father-son rule, which is quite a unique a really special tradition in AFL football where if your father has played a certain amount of games for the the club, then that club had the option to take you and not go into the draft system. So it's a really – it's dear to my heart, that whole system, um, because there's a real connection yeah. for our family anyway for at the Essendon Football Club. And so it wasn't great for my studies, knowing that halfway through the year 12 that I was uh, going to be drafted. <laughs> Your
0: uh, your buddies that you're playing football with must have been pretty jealous that you'd you'd been notified early, sort of ahead of them in terms of getting that opportunity.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, my school friends were really excited for me, and and I I guess we had a I had another friend who I grew up with who he got drafted when he was in year 11, so he'd played wow. his whole last year of school had known that he was going to be. And who who was that? a Luke Ball. So he was a really a talented junior player, and and was drafted yeah, as a 17-year-old before he'd even started yeah, year wow. 12. So uh, you can imagine what he was like in the hallways at school. <laughs> he was walking around with the chest puffed out. and uh, nice. But it was, it was a funny sort of, I guess it wasn't unusual then to have someone who, was already know, who already knew that they were going to be playing AFL footy. So for me, it was just a little bit normalized because Luke had already been notified and he was already doing it. Yeah, sure. And you alluded to the fact
0: that your dad Offered you some great advice as you were sort of coming through the, the the later years of your junior football career. Was there anyone else that was of you know considerable note in terms of inspiration and helped shape you into becoming the the player that was drafted and making your way into the AFL
1: system? Yeah, I was really fortunate that we had a one guy in particular who worked for uh, the Sandy Dragons, a guy called Wayne Oswald, who was in control of the program at, at Sandringham Dragons, and he was a a fantastic. Person to be in charge of young developing footballers because he saw it from a bit more of a holistic perspective, and he wanted the he wanted all the players to get the most out of their football career. But they, he he focused a lot on guys being uh, good people, and and he wanted them to be learning the right way about certain things, and and he was teaching, I guess, these young teenagers about stepping into the real world and how to cope. And he was giving guys a, a, advice on coping with life. And uh, I was really fortunate enough that he um, spent, I spent a lot of time with him and and I found him to be a, a great mentor in terms of what he was able to offer and perspective on life. And I think when you're so, I guess, focused on one goal, to be able to have someone who can understand that level of focus but it can also give you perspective on the importance other important things in life. It meant that, it, you know, guys who weren't successful getting drafted, the world didn't collapse for them, you know, and yeah, exactly. he was trying to educate people on what else there was in life and what's really important in life. And to have someone who can do that at junior ranks, you know, I think he, he really helped a lot of people go through that Sandringham program.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we just had breakfast and it sounds like some of what you just said has also helped you later on in your career things into perspective which we'll we'll touch on soon. So you've 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 gone through you've you've been drafted through the father-son selection and you've made your way to, to Essendon Football Club, which you know if anyone out there is is not sure who Essendon is or perhaps you're from overseas, they're the largest or one of the largest football clubs in Australia and the the greatest sport in Australia. So it's a it's quite a big deal. And in terms of sport, probably the biggest deal to be drafted to a club like this. What what was it like walking in the doors into SN? I'm guessing it's what's two thousand and four? Two thousand and two. Two thousand and
1: two. Yeah. Okay. So two thousand
0: and two, you walk in as a as a father-son selection. No doubt slightly more expectation, weight on your shoulders, potentially because of your father's name and everything that comes along with that. And he was three time premiership players. Yep. Know? So there's a, there's an enormous amount of expectation there. Tell oh. us about what that was like coming through as a as a, a first year player.
1: Yeah, it was. Daunting. Uh, I think for any player, it's daunting being drafted and walking into the system where you've watched these people on television and they're huge stars in your eyes and you've dreamt about it. And I guess there's extra expectations, um, which is just natural when your father has played for the same club. So certainly aware of it. I was really fortunate, though, through my whole formative years that there was never any extra expectations placed on my home from a home. Perspective, and my parents just said to me from the start, you know, like if you don't have to play footy, you don't have to play sport, you don't have to do whatever, just do whatever makes you happy. So there's so much, so much of my time was spent, I guess, under that roof. So it was never, it never felt like there was expectations from home, which I think really helped me when I walked into the professional sport arena where there were expectations, but I struggled with it. You know, like there was, I, I think. One of the things I, I still remember now is when I got, when I officially got drafted, when the draft happened and, and dad, I was in on a trip with him, just the two of us in London. And he said to me, now that, you know, like, you, you don't understand, but now the real work starts. And I thought, I remember thinking to myself, you don't know how hard I've just worked. Like, you got, you don't know where I've, what I've done to get here. But reflecting on it now, he was absolutely right. Like, the work really starts when you turn professional. Yeah, so he was able to see that bigger picture and what you were about to walk into. Yeah,
0: so so how did the the first season and and those initial stages of your time at Essendon sort of unfold as a player?
1: Well, yeah, I guess what what he said was true. You know, like I didn't understand the level of work, the level of fitness, uh, the diligence that was required. You know, I'd been you know in a school system that probably didn't expose players, the young guys, to the rigors of professional sport. And my body just couldn't stand up to it and 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 my mind wasn't ready for it either. And so I really struggled the first few years. I always had the self-belief that I was good enough to play and that I had the the confidence in my own ability. But my body and my mind, my mind, I guess, wasn't ready for and hadn't built up the level of resilience to compete consistently professionally. And I guess I now that I think back on it, I, I think, well you know, that that level of resilience that I was able to get and that it came through hard work and, and perseverance and that, that the ability to have the career that I had was instigated by the amount that I put into preparation and, and work and, and that sort of happened, I guess, after about three years in the system where I'd really been floundering and my career was probably at the crossroads. So just, just to put it into
0: perspective for listeners who who may not know much about the AFL system, in terms of this physical and mental commitment as a first-year player and in that first three-year period, what are we talking in terms of hours and sessions and, and what is the requirement of, of the young player coming into the system
1: back then? Yeah, I think, well, it it's becomes a, it's just like a job, you know, it's a professional job. But as a 17-year-old, you know, you, I just wasn't prepared for it. I didn't realise the amount of physical work that would be required, so training every day, the level of recovery that you would need to do, the mind uh, work that would need to be done, the, the systems that were being taught at AFL level. And I suppose anyone who, who goes into professional sport, no matter what they think they've prepared themselves for, the moment they make that leap, they realise that they don't know what they don't know. And, and what I didn't know was how hard it was going to be and what I needed to do to be successful in it and how competitive it is. And, you know, the average career back then was three and a half years. The average games played was, I think, seven. So the turnover uh, high. is high. And- so a lot of people are making it to that
0: crossroad period, that, you know, that you sort of found yourself at. Just was there any time in that stage where I know you you knew that you sort of had the talent to, to push through, but was there any time there where you thought, maybe I'm not going to make it here?
1: Yeah, I think I, I thought to myself, I need to change something. I always had the belief that I was good enough to play, but I just thought I'm, I'm floundering here. You know, like I, I'm really not going anywhere. And again, it was my father who sort of, he had another fatherly chat with me. And uh, this time it was a little bit more pointed. And he said, (laughs) he just said to me, listen, you don't have to do this. No one, no one is doing this. You're not, no expectations on you to do this. If you don't want to do this, you shouldn't do it. But I'll give you some advice. What you're doing now is you're doing a disservice to yourself because you're not committing yourself what you need to to get the most out of it. Don't feel like you have to do this for anyone other than yourself. But from what I see, is I'm seeing someone who's actually doing themselves a disservice. And and when you look back and
0: and at that chat and and what you were doing and you were able to obviously clearly turn it around to play over 200 games, win multiple best and fairest, all Australian. Is it anything sort of that you can pick? in particular that was holding you back in those first three years or is it just a general workload commitment type of thing?
1: I, I think it was my, my level of fitness. That was, if I look at it, I just, my preparation wasn't at the absolute elite level that it needed to be and I just hadn't, I'd done what everyone else had done in terms of work rate. I hadn't done more than everyone else. And that's really, that was the, the shift in the mindset. It was, if this is what the program is, then I'm doing more than that. If this is what uh, we've been told we need to do, then I'll do something extra. And that was, it was that shift of mentality. Okay. Just going that extra yard, whatever was required. Yeah. yeah. So, can you, what
0: year did you actually debut and play your first senior game?
1: 2003. Um, so, halfway through 2003, I played. My first game, and then I got dropped the next week and didn't play for the rest of the year. Okay,
0: so, can you remember much of that first game and who you played against and the, sort of the emotion leading up to that game?
1: Yeah, I remember we played um, Geelong on a Friday night, and it was obviously a huge thing for my family. You know, like my family had been connected to the football club since uh, my dad was 15 years old, since he played, and then, you know, he met my mum when they were 20. So, my mum you know connected uh, as well is connected as well and then my mum's family my dad's family so it's a big thing for our family and it was uh, it was a really exciting time for for everyone involved and and I was really excited by it I was quite daunted by it but I remember it sort of just it happening really quickly and and I just couldn't believe how fast the game was that was the thing I remember the most is just like I can't believe how quick this this game is and and I thought to myself gee this is moving quick I'm a little bit out of my depth
0: <laughs> And as I as I mentioned before, you then you know you went from that debut game, and you really went on to forge a tremendous career. And you know, definitely in Melbourne and across Australia, when people hear the name Joe Watson, they think of a, a champion of the game that achieved so much. How or, or when you look back on your career, what what are your fondest moments of the game from a, a team point of view, but also from a, a personal
1: point of view? I think that the, from the team point of view is, I guess, the relationships and being. And, you know, being in a leadership role, having a, a positive impact on people, you know, that I care about. And there's obviously times that, you know, were really difficult, but I think always trying to do the best for the people around me. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud about is I think when, when you're faced with adversity or when real pressure is on, then whether you're able to think internally or you're able to think externally. And, and I feel like I was able to still keep the, what were the best interests of the people around me at the forefront of my mind rather than thinking what was in the best interest for me. So I, I think that that is something that I look back on, even though it might sound negative, it's actually you know like something that I fondly look back on. I think being able to to pivot and, and change something as well is something that I'm proud of for my career. You know, you, people get so caught up in in a mentality or a mindset, and then it's it's hard or difficult for people to break out of that. But being able to shift multiple periods of my formative years in the game and have a positive outcome of that, I, I think that that is something that holds someone in good stead for. Further parts of their life and, and so that's sort of I guess from a playing perspective the things that I like about them. And were, were there any games in particular that you
0: look back on and enjoyed the most or look forward to the most and also any players that you played against that you just really you know love the competition and you look forward to matching up against them?
1: Yeah I think I mean we're recording this on Anzac Day and, and this is clearly the Apart from grand final day or playing finals, this is the best day to play in Australia. Just an incredible atmosphere an amazing. I, I think if anyone who hasn't been to an Anzac Ga- Day game or any international person who's in Australia in April, they should definitely go to a game and experience what it is. Um, and it's become such a huge part of, I guess, um, the day. And to be a part of that and, and we played in uh, some great Anzac Day games and, I think that uh, you know the games that I f- most remember fondly are uh, you know when there's adversity or you're playing against a really good side and, and you're able to go there and, and beat them or just compete and in terms of players playing against them, you know I was fortunate enough to play against some great players. I always admired Simon Black um, so much because I guess I was as I was a younger teenager, he was a real star of the competition and then going out, able to compete against him and so he was someone that I really enjoyed playing against, and been you know to be able to watch you know Gary Ablett Junior. and Lance Franklin up close. You know I think those two guys have probably been the two that have, in my mind, elevated themselves above everyone else from the period that I've been involved in football. And and they, I think you know to say that you played against those guys and and competed against them, that they're sort of the things that you think back on and you think oh you know like that was great to see. Uh, up close and personal, sometimes you, you're on the, the bad end of what they're being able to do, but that, that's part of sport. You know, like you just, you compete and, and you love playing against other people who want to compete as hard as you do. And and when you when you sort of run out
0: onto the ground and, and, and compete, you know, we, we hear of some players who, who sort of potentially through their whole career always had a level of self-doubt and, and were nervous going into games, butterflies, and then there's other players who are just incredibly confident and, you know, thrive on the challenge. How would you describe your sort of inner feeling and butterfly, so to speak, in terms of each game going out? What what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, I never really felt nervous before games, especially after I, I suppose I, I was when I was young, when I hadn't had the preparation that I sort of got to it when I was older. So the older I got, the more excited I was just to, to compete and what we were able to what I was like trying to do, you know. So I was never sort of in a negative mindset. I never felt I'm worried about what's going to happen today. It was more about I'm just going to enjoy doing what I know that I can. And I, I think that when I was in a leadership position as well, it was trying to You're also mindful of portraying any, uh, something to the people that you're leading. And so I think it was really important to have that aura of confidence and, because people are looking at you and they're looking for an example. And, and so when you can display that, they feed off that, and and that I think is something that I always kept in the back of my mind. And and from a, a leadership point of view, so you know, obviously,
0: you started off your career as a, as a young player coming through. You hit the crossroads at three years in, and then you you turn things around. At what point did did you realise that you actually had the leadership qualities to to run out on the game day, but also during the week? Be the captain of the club and not only look after yourself, but now look after another 21 plus players from the Essendon Football Club.
1: Yeah, I think that you never really know what you're getting into until you're into it. And leadership, it's really tough and and it's exhausting and it's draining and, and you have to give a lot of yourself and that's just the responsibility of doing it. We went on a, a leadership camp. There was a group of about eight of us in 2006 after the season, and I think uh, I sort of felt from my peers, where we it was the younger guys in the group, felt from my peers that they sort of viewed me as a leader, and and I guess that was solidified as we went through the process of electing um, position people in positions of leadership. Is was always voted for by the peers, by my peers, and so when when you get that kind of Feedback from the people who are around you, and they feel they elect you to that position. Then it gives you a lot of confidence that that's how they view you, and that what you're doing is is right. And then then you get actually elected, and you realise that you don't know anything, and you've got to change, and you have to be fluid, and you have to be able to be to converse and to understand and there's all these challenges of of leadership, but it's something that you're continually learning about and, and that was the thing that I enjoyed the most is the challenges that you, you faced when you're in your first year of leadership are very different from the ones that you can cha- you can face in your third, your fourth, your fifth. But it's constantly challenging you and it's constantly forcing you to change and adapt and learn. Those were the things that I really enjoyed about leadership.
0: And I guess you know, with 21 different personalities on the field, mm. it must have been hard to to sort of tailor your leadership approach to get the most out of everyone. Did you find that you you sort of gelled with some people more and you could get, and, and then others, it was more
1: difficult? Yeah, I think that there's naturally that your personality traits more align with other people. And so you you have that easier connection with some people. But I think that one of the challenges of leadership is being able to find connections with the people that you don't really naturally align yourselves with uh, from a personality traits. And that's the real key of it. It's understanding people. And if you can't understand people, then you, you can't manage them. And if you can't manage them, you shouldn't be leading them in the first place. And so it's almost like a puzzle trying to piece together. The ability to, how am I going to get the best out of this person? Because how I get the best out of this person is very different to how I'm going to get the best out of that person. And it's, you know, like it's problem solving. And I quite liked that. And being able to build a rapport with someone who I had nothing really in common with other than a sport, um, I found to be a really enjoyable challenge of it. Frustrating at times, but enjoyable
0: nonetheless. You mentioned that you know taking on leadership, you need to sacrifice a little bit of your your own self and your own time that normally would go into yourself. But what what I find interesting is that when you took on the captaincy and, and during your period, your game seemed to go to the next level, right? so what do you just put that down to maturing you know as as both a player and a and a leader at the same time or or were were they closely aligned to sort of earning more respect and 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 then that having an impact on your own
1: personal game as well yeah, I think that there's there's an element of you you sort of you going into the prime from your age bracket as well, you know for a lot of guys that at twenty three to twenty nine it may seem young and People's minds, but in from an elite sport, especially in AFL, you're sure sure that's your prime area. So I think that there's an element of that. And also, I felt I feel that there's, you know, people who get weighed down by the responsibility. And that wasn't sort of how I felt about it. I enjoyed the responsibility. And so it was, it was a challenge for me rather than a burden. And I guess that's the mindset. If someone, how you approach something, you're either taking, taking it on to, to get better at it, or are you're you gonna let it defeat you and, and weigh you down. And that was, I guess, how I viewed it and 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 therefore it was really enjoyable for me. It wasn't something that I feared or felt burdened by. It was something that I looked forward to. Yeah, sure. And you know, no
0: doubt Australians would have been sort of well aware of the investment in being in the media and the sort of saga that unfolded and I personally know from the outside looking in. Um, you know, James Heard was certainly in the hot seat, but you—you you were the captain of the club at that time, and you know, I, I know I personally sort of felt a bit concerned that you were carrying the, a lot of the heat on your shoulders. And I think I think we need to provide a little bit of background here just mm. for the listeners in terms of what unfolded. So perhaps you're you know you're better at sort of explaining what happened and what unfolded and how that felt you know, for you personally as a leader of the club?
1: Yeah, I guess there probably wouldn't be too many Australians who wouldn't be familiar with it, but for the international, there was a, um, a program run at the, the club for the 2012 um, season. And then at the beginning of the 2013 season, there was an investigation launched into whether that program had, I guess, breached any of the doping code. Outlined by the Asada, and there was that investigation was launched at the beginning of 2013, and for the the 2013 season, that was a huge part of the season, and and then it led to the team being removed from the final series. So we we were kicked out of the final series in 2013. Our coach was suspended for 12 months, and then in 2014, we were told that there was going to be. A investigation into the the club further, and that the players were actually going to be charged with uh, doping control offences. Was that was that from the Yeah, that yeah. was from the SADA. And so there was a a court case that was going to be conducted at the AFL Tribunal, and we were going to be prosecuted by um, Sada and the AFL, and could face bans. So we there was a court case that went through from the end of two thousand fourteen right up until the start of the 2015 season. So 2004, you missed the 2013
0: finals. Yep. You were removed from those finals. 2014? Yeah,
1: midway through 2014, they launched. Were you playing that year? Yeah, we were playing. You were allowed to start again? Yes. Despite missing the finals? Despite missing the finals and we were banned from the draft and and there were other sanctions. We lost... Staffing and people who were involved. And then um, 2014, halfway through the year, they said that they would be continuing the, the case and that they would look to prosecute under the doping control, uh, Asada's doping control and the World Anti Doping Agency's guidelines. And so that uh, court case, that case began at the end of 2014 and ran up into the week of the 2015 season. So we had. Through that period, we we knew there was a case against us, but we didn't know what our circumstances were going to be for the 2015 season. On the eve of the 15th season, we were cleared um, that we hadn't breached any of the um, doping control guidelines and that we were free to play and that the case in the minds of um, the AFL Tribunal, we had no case to answer for. So at that period, that must have been what felt like a huge weight off the shoulders. Yeah, that was an incredible relief post well we were launching into a season but we you know we were weighed down heavily on what was taking place. And who was the coach at that stage was it? Uh, so James herb was back at coaching. Back coaching so he'd served the band for 2014 and Mark Thompson had come in for 2014 and then um, handed back over to James for 2015. Yeah, so at
0: that period, you, on a personal level, but also the club, did you feel like the whole
1: issue was done and dusted? Uh, certainly after the, the tribunal announced that we were cleared, we felt like it was going to be the end of the situation. I guess we felt like uh, we'd, the, the case had been brought against us. An independent tribunal had seen that there was no case to answer and we were quite um, relieved and being able to move on. And then halfway through 2015, Wider announced that they would appeal the decision and that we would have to go ahead in front of um, the Court of Arbitration of Sport, um, CAS, and that hearing would happen in uh, November. So that was done up in Sydney. The, the hearing lasted for a week. We had to, we were against Wider and sit in front in front of three um, judicial members of uh, CAS, and then in January 2016, we were told that we were. Going to be banned for 12 months. So uh, that was so from the, the, I guess the moment that uh, we discovered that there was going to be an investigation against us was February 2013. And then January 2016, we were told that we were, uh, as we were preparing to go into another season, we were told that we were banned for 12 months. It's an enormous
0: amount of time and ups and downs and emotions flowing through that whole period. It seems, I know from from an Australian perspective, it was always in the paper. It seemed to have dragged out. As I said before, you were in the hot seat. Do you think people, the Australian public and media sort of forgot this was people's lives and and there was, you know, people were being affected daily
1: on this? I think that there was such um, hysteria about the story and from the moment it broke to the decision in 2016, the, the story changed so much and so significantly and it just kept on being fed by new information or the changes of, or the results of one tribunal or the appeal of another. So the story just kept going and kept being fed. Everyone had an opinion of it. It was so publicised so there was always, always information for people to be able to consume. There was angles that different parties wanted to be viewed and and they, they wanted to, uh, I guess, promote their certain angles initially there was a huge amount of frustration and anger from I think the, the public because they couldn't believe that the game had got to this level and I think that the longer and longer they went, it went, it just seemed like, I don't know whether the the public got tired of it or they just felt like it, this has just gone on for too long, you know, let, let's, let's move it. on. It's too, it's consumed too much of my own viewing, you know, like I've read too much about this. I'm not I'm just frustrated by it and, and I think that that was probably what happened by the end and certainly for, you know, like supporters, uh, you know, Essendon supporters or supporters of the game, I think that there was a lot of people who were really hurt and angry by it at the beginning and and maybe they still feel that way but towards the end, I think that they were just frustrated that it had continued for such a long period of time.
0: And do you think that appeal was a sign of, it was wider it was Water that appealed it? that they just needed to do something to actually close it and to to close it, put, it, put an end to this sort of chapter?
1: I guess that for, you know, it's, it's difficult to speculate on why they did it, but from their perspective, I guess they believed that they still had a case and that they wanted to take it to a higher level. They felt that they were entitled to which they were to take it to the court of arbitration of sport you know obviously we're on uh, the other side of it so there's we have a disagreement on uh, fundamental things about the case but you know that in a legal uh setting setting people are entitled to exhaust every avenue they they can so
0: they are entitled to do that and if you if you sort of look back on it now, I know we, we spoke at breakfast. There's some positive things that have come out of it, which I really want to touch on because I think that, that's really inspiring and, and something that people can take a lot away from. But as the captain, and sort of reflecting back on 2012, yep. And you know, I think I think as the public, no one sort of everyone's on the same page in terms of the players didn't really know what was going on. If you look back on it, do you ever think, okay, as a captain, maybe sh- should I have? sort of seeing what was going on or was it just so hard as a player to sort of understand you're in a club, there's programs set up by experienced people and you just go with the flow?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, in hindsight, you always say, oh, look, this I should have done more, you know, like I could have done this or I should have done that. But you're only doing that with the information that you have in hindsight. At the time... You know the program was bought in by the club. It was sanctioned by the football club. We're employed by that club and and we place enormous amount of trust in the people in the in the club we have enormous amount of trust in you know i I think that we exhausted every possible avenue that we could legally to try and exonerate ourselves because we believed that we weren't guilty and that was that was our belief from the moment i guess the accusations were there right up until all the evidence that we saw against us at the final cas hearing we still were trying to fight it and appeal after that result but i think that when i when i look back on it you know i just think well of course i should have done more or of course i could have done more but i don't necessarily have a really huge sense of guilt about it because if i didn't have those feelings at the time you know and and i can't live retrospectively yeah there's sadness about it, and there's and I'm you know it still upsets me, but I don't have a sense of a sense of ah oh, this was ridiculous, and I just put I stuck my head in my in the sand, and and I really should have done a lot more.
0: So, the, so the program wasn't too different to ever, anything else you'd
1: experienced before. The program it was different to um, what we'd experienced before, but it wasn't. I guess it was sort of stuff that we had been sanctioned by the club you know and and we they are our employer, and, yeah, and we just sort check everything we we thought to ourselves like why would anyone in hindsight why would anyone try and do this? You know, like it's just so such a ridiculous thing. We get tested all the time, everyone in the club is here there's not. it's not like we're going offside and being and it's mm. hiding away. These are our employers they have a
0: duty of care you know, yeah. to, to look after us. Do you think that has, I mean, it's clearly set an example for other clubs, but yeah. given that the program was sort of, you know, it wasn't a clear breach of any sort of doping type of <laughs> regulation. This was uncharted territory. Players seem to think it was part of just a normal program. That's what they're being told by experts do you, without naming other clubs or anything like that, was this just an Essendon type of issue or potentially something that was spread through other clubs and maybe even other sports?
1: Yeah, I can't sort of speak on what other clubs were doing, but I think that what happened afterwards was a lot of clubs realised that they didn't really have great governance on and the potential for something like this could have easily happened somewhere else. Uh, And I think a lot of clubs sort of, came to the AFL and said, listen, we actually don't have a great level of governance either here. We don't think there's any, there's anything that's happened here, but we it could have easily have happened here. So I think that that meant that there was a, a lot of tightening up around what the doctors were involved in, their level of reporting, what kind of background checks were done when people were brought into football clubs and that sort of thing. And so that was, I think, a, a positive step for the rest of the sport. And just just for the listeners, what were the actual like breaches? What
0: are we talking about in terms of supplementation? What what were the the players being given, and and what were you being told the benefit? I guess of this was from a, a
1: performance or recovery point of view. Eventually, what we were uh, charged with was taking uh, thymosin beta four, which was a a banned substance in two thousand and twelve. It was never proven that anyone. That, individuals had ever taken that, but that was what was um, charged against us. Yeah. That formed the the parameters around the, the breach. So, so that
0: ended up being what was sort of enforced when they did the appeal. Yeah. Even though there was no proof of any
1: individual. No one could actually say that this person had it, but we were all bundled in together as one collective. And so all 34 of us were banned. Okay.
0: And was that something that's been on the or whatever, has that been on the band list for a long time or is it something that was newly added? Do you know? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I'm not um, 100% sure whether or not it was on the list for a long time or if it was recently added, but it was on the band list. Okay. Yep. So we'll,
0: we'll move on to your year off and, and, and what you went and did there, but I think just in terms of closing that sort of conversation off, you obviously that dragged out for, for a number of years. And then you were suspended for a year. Is there any bad blood there with the club or, you know, particular people within the club or the coach or anything like that? Or is your relationship, Joe Watson, you know, big, big part, you know, your family's a big part of Essendon. Is your relationship still healthy with them?
1: Yeah, I think, I guess when I reflect on it, my, my feelings are of sadness because of the level and the amount of time that it it dragged on for. So you have such a short career, in football and, and four years of, of not only my career but my teammates were absorbed by this. So that, that that makes me sad. I don't have ill feelings towards the club, but the club didn't do their job. You know, they, they they were negligent and they were negligent on multiple levels and and they had to admit that. And and you know I guess my feelings are that that it happened. There was no there's no point sort of harbouring grudges and ill feelings towards the club because of that. But I do have sadness because of what myself and my teammates had to go through. And I guess,
0: you know, the club's bigger than the people and a lot of those individuals that you're sort of referring to there have since been moved on. That's right. Okay. So you get suspended and, you know, I can't even imagine what you must've been thinking there. You're going from being captain of Essendon, full-time job is to run out there and perform and all of a sudden you know you're going to have 12 months of not playing football yep you wake up the next day what are you thinking
1: i i was just sort of, i think i felt a little bit numb you know like a, a bit um really unsure about what was going to happen uh, there was so much uncertainty it was really you know, like we drove we drove somewhere at 7 a.m and at 705 you know our whole life had been sort of changed so it took me a few days to sort of realize and let it sort of sink in and things like that. And I guess I uh, started to reflect on what I wanted to achieve in that 12 months off. And you know, it it took a while, but I started to think, okay, well, what can I get out of this? You know, like I actually do have a great opportunity. I've Been involved in this sport since I was 17 years old, straight out of high school. And now I have 12 months off and I should make the most of it. And there were a lot of things that, you know, I wasn't, hadn't been able to do being involved in footy. And so I wrote a list of things that I wanted to achieve for that year and I set about completing them.
0: And tell us about that list and and what was involved there. And and I know you moved over to New York. So we just go through that.
1: Yeah, I think that it was about trying new things, having new experiences, completing different tasks, living overseas, meeting new people. It was a shift in it was a shift in mindset I, I think that I'd become so I guess suffocated by the football world and and what had happened specifically over the last 4 years. And was that mindset that
0: you're You're sort of talking about there. Was that something that was shared by your other teammates? I'm I'm sure the day after that decision, a lot of you guys were on the phone and texting each other and talking about what's next or there might have even been some uncertainty as to the decision there. Was
1: everyone on the same page about just getting on with things? No, no. It was very much an individual thing, yeah. So there was, um, you know, like we we set up a, a ability for people to train, you know, so that there was still that connection because really the only people that could understand how you felt or what you're going through were the other people who were in your same situation. Because you you weren't allowed to presumably go into the club? No, right? no. Train from, with the club? From that day, there was we weren't allowed to be in any facility that was – had elite sport around it. We weren't allowed to be in contact with any person from the football club. So, uh, so even staff, the officials weren't allowed no to. No officials. It. So you guys left. We, on we your left own. on our own. Yeah. And obviously, as a captain, it was
0: you know you were a major part of pulling things like that together.
1: Yeah, we had we had the we had the support of the AFLPA, which were, who were our union, and then we were able to through the networks here in Melbourne, we were able to get a lot of support from people who wanted to help. Um, so we set up. Our own um, training, and we kept some structure in because you know, like we when you're in this professional environment, structure is really important to, you and it's consistent and and it's what you know. So we kept a level of consistency with training and structure, and we tried to arrange to to, to associate and things like that with each other. And where were you? Where were you performing most of that? training. Uh, yeah, we would go to different areas and, and just train at parks and things like that. So it was we were really trying to back make to it fun. Basic. Yeah, it was back to basics and and uh we tried to make it as fun as what we could. And um, what was it like we're sort of just you know walking around Melbourne at that stage? It was difficult. For me, it was difficult. Yeah. And that was really the I mean, when I look at the the list of things that I wanted to do. For me, I was at a different stage to a lot of, the, of my teammates. You know, like I was single. I had no reason to be here. The thing I was going to miss the most was my dog and I entrusted him with my uh, with my housemates. But, you know, those guys with families and things that, who couldn't just pack up and leave, but I could. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's that was really, it was really important to me to go out and see what life was like in the real
0: world. And also, I guess, just comparing yourself with some of the other Players that were were also suspended you were probably a little bit more certain about your career after that year or were you still a little bit was it a little bit unknown
1: in terms of if i'd
0: come back and yeah, fly if you'd come back like without having that communication with the club how did you know where you stood
1: i wasn't certain at all if i was come back yeah i, I remember i remember being at melbourne airport leaving and thinking to myself i don't know if i'll ever come back wow so that was that was sort of my mindset at that stage and footy was very secondary to that you know like I was thinking about moving overseas and staying there was permanently. That, was that
0: you know you've you mentioned the new experiences and stuff but we just spoke about like the pressure and walking around the street was
1: that a result of that was it getting a bit too much? Yeah I think in the end I just felt like I was being suffocated being here and that it wasn't really conducive to happiness you know for me anyway and When I guess I I didn't have to be here anymore, I realized that 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 shackle of being here wasn't there anymore and I could go. And there was, you know, like there were a lot of things that I wanted to do and a lot of things that I wanted to try and and I had the freedom to do it. And so I moved to New York. And and what was your dad's sort of opinion and experience through that period? Mum and dad were very supportive, but they... I think that they, like a lot of the other parents were very hurt by what had happened to. So they were very, I guess, reflective themselves, you know, like they had worn the brunt of the feelings and the ups and downs and it had been exhausting for them. So I think that they they were probably in a sense um, trying to understand the whole thing as well. And I just, it wasn't a question, you know, like I'm not, I didn't say to them, look, I'm thinking about going, I just said like, I'm I'm off. Um, And I they understood that, you know, I think that they understood why. And they, they just said, look, you got to do what you got to do. So you, you've, you're suspended
0: and and you jump on the plane by yourself. Yep. So you're moving over to New York by yourself, must've been sitting on the plane, just tremendously excited about what may come from that move. So it was straight to New York, was it? Yep. And, What what unfolded in New York and how long did you spend there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was excited. I was really, I guess, a bit daunted by it as well. You know, like uh, I had nothing to do there. Uh, (laughs) I had uh, two good friends who were living there at the time and that was probably the reason why I went there. And I didn't know how long I was going to be there. I had a return flight because my sister, two two of my sisters were getting married in October. So I had to be back in Australia for that. But I had no plans at all. And that was daunting, and you know, I was probably a bit, I was, I was afraid about like what I was going to do here. Oh, here is in New York, but I, I went there, and and I just said, listen to myself. I just said, look, you, you're here now. You may as well just start saying yes to things, you know. And 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 that's sort of what I did, and and it's changed, you know, for me. Um, it wasn't instant, but it started to how I felt about. Experiences and 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 doing different things and and it sort of just was self fulfilling and I started to feel better the, the more things I tried and further away I was from who I was here and we
0: we spoke earlier you've you've now set up a few cafes and I think it's called Hole in the Wall yep where did that start and what was it like you know working in a cafe serving coffees around sort of the Wall Street area. And, and how different that must have felt to running out onto the MCG on Anzac Day in front of 100,000 people.
1: Yeah, I guess it, it all started, you know, with the list that I wrote a couple of days after I, I um, was suspended. And and one of the things that I wrote down was that I wanted to try new things and learn new skills. And so I went to Hawaii for a couple of days and uh, I was there with one of my teammates and his girlfriend and and I uh, tried surfing. And I stood up, and so I said to him, "Well, I've completed that. I don't you need, need to worry about often. it." Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then when I got to to New York, I sort of thought to myself, "Well, I need I need to to do something." And my friend who was living there, she put me in touch with this guy who she knew who owned a cafe. I said to him, "Listen, uh, if you teach me how to make coffee, I'll work for you for free." I just wanted some structure, and I wanted some. Uh, do something that was totally different to what I'd been doing, and she said, "Yeah, sure, you can come and work as much as you like." So, twice a week, I would go up to the um, the cafe um, on 38th and Fifth, and and I'd start pouring coffees and interacting with the um, the local Americans who would come in, and and I loved it. And did you? I mean, in that
0: environment, did you start to sort of? get that real enjoyment of life back and compared to walking around the streets of Melbourne and and having the whole media circus that was going on?
1: Yeah, I think I really enjoyed just engaging with people and, and learning like a new skill. And then there was no preconceived idea from the person I was engaging with. And I was, it was my first time that I'd worked in hospitality as well, you know, so like it was a new, it was different for me. I was learning day. something every day and and I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed not having to take my work home with me and and I enjoyed the freedom of, you know, just clocking on, clocking off. And, and I really, I think the thing that I most enjoyed was just being able to engage with people and being able to communicate about different things and learning about different people's stories and getting perspective on like what life was like for someone who was earning Seven dollars an hour, you know, uh, or whatever it was, and that was the thing that I most enjoyed. It was connecting with people.
0: and And how long were you actually over there in, in New York for before you returned to Melbourne?
1: Uh, so I was over there for seven, eight months, I think. Yeah, and I did a lot of travelling. Some of the best things I did was I was based in New York, but I was you You know know, numbing around. Yeah. New York's a lot more central than what Melbourne, Australia is. So it was a lot easier to get away. And I had some fantastic trips and fantastic experiences throughout Europe and Canada and and all sorts of places, upstate New York. And And I
0: believe you met your now girlfriend over there. Was that in New York?
1: Yeah, in New York in a cafe. I uh, I was sitting at a table and a big communal table in a coffee shop and she was sitting there and I text my my friend who I was living with. I said to her, there's an attractive girl sitting across from me on the uh, table, but she's not giving me any indication that she's interested. And, <laughs> and my friend who is female as well, she said, um, well, you should give her your number. And the least, the, the worst thing that can happen is that if you go up to her and give her a number, then you're paying her a compliment that you find her attractive. And if she never calls you again, what have you lost? And so I got a napkin and wrote my number down and Followed her out of the cafe and tapped her on the shoulder, and the rest that, is history. The rest is history. Yeah,
0: she must be um, thankful for the the, <laughs> the advice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and during that seven months in New York, did you you're still not in contact with the Essendon Football Club? No. Were you Were you maintaining your fitness base over there with the mindset of
1: returning for the following season? I hadn't made my mind up whether I was going to return or not. But what I didn't want to do is I didn't want the decision to be taken out of my hands because I didn't condition myself well enough. So I trained as if I would. And if I didn't really, really want to, then it wasn't because I wasn't, my body wasn't prepared. So I did some things that were totally different. I mean, I was living near McCarran Park, so I was able to run around the athletics track there. I did some fantastic different sessions at different studios around New York. I did, uh, a, a, a session called Brooklyn Body Burn on a mega Forma, which is fantastic for core and did some great yoga stuff, um, hip hop yoga in the dark and uh, a lot of meditation, motor yoga, which is a yoga shop just over in Williamsburg there. I used to go to a fair bit. I did some bike sessions underground, bike sessions where you'd be dancing on the bike or doing a spin session. So I had some fantastic experiences, which is really what I wanted. I'd been training you know, at an elite level for such a long time. It'd become a little bit monotonous, you know, yeah, but, sure. but doing it in these kinds of environments with these kinds of people, I found to be really enjoyable. So coming to the end of that seven
0: months, you came back to Australia what period were you allowed to re-engage with the club again and start talking to officials and, and working out, well, what was the, the future looking like for Joe Watson as a, an Essendon footballer?
1: So I wasn't able to step back into the club until I think the 1st of October. So I had to make the decision about whether or not I was going to play prior to that. Um, so I made the decision that I was going to come back and play and but I still wasn't able to associate with any of the staff until the 1st of October. And the decision to come
0: back and play, was that based on you thinking you you still had more fuel in the tank or did you also want to come back and, and finish off on a good note and, and leave the Essendon Football Club and the fans, paying respect to the fans, you know, you're a really, really big part of the club and the captain. Was was that the motivation behind it or what was it inspired you to do, come back and play another year?
1: Yeah, I think that I felt... That it was going to be more fulfilling to finish on my own terms rather than the way it had. I I felt like I owed it to my teammates to come back, the other guys that we'd been involved in, uh, who we'd gone through it with. And I did feel a sense of that I wanted to share in a positive experience with my fan, with the, with the fans and the supporters. And I felt that that was really important. And also I, I really, I thought it was, um, important, you know, to have, a positive way of my career sort of finishing up, you know, for my family and friends, you know, like they were the driving forces. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, the
0: reasoning, I guess, behind it. And what was the feedback like from the fans when you came back over that 12-month period? Do you feel like they accepted you back into the club? You said some of them were a little bit frustrated by how long this dragged out and may have they may have felt a bit of pain as well. Were they Were they receptive in your return?
1: Yeah, I think that they the fans were always incredibly loyal to um the players and they had periods of frustration and anger and they were hurt and but they were always very supportive of the the players and and i think that they were you know really for them it was a sense of being able to move on when all the players came back, and and I think that last year we had some great experiences, and it was great to to see the level of enjoyment that coming back and playing meant to so many other people, and you, you forget that a lot, especially I guess when you're in moments of hardship, is you, you can internalise things a lot, and when you start to see the level of joy that you can create for other people, it. it makes you feel really lucky and thankful. And, and that was sort of a things that I always tried to keep it front of mind was the ability to make other people happy just from doing what you love to do is a pretty special thing to be, be able unique. to do. It is. And, and I think that coming back and playing made a lot of people happy. And, and that was really nice to see and was really nice to share it
0: with them. And it was, it was documented that I think in your return year, you came back and played that final year, but potentially during your time in New York, you you started to consume less animal products from a nutrition point of view. What was the the inspirational motive behind that, and um, yeah, what transpired?
1: Yeah, I I started to you know educate myself a lot more on. What I was consuming, and I moved in when it came back. I moved in with my um, sister and my partner, and and she, my sister, was vegetarian and and had had been for a long period of time. And so I started, I guess, living with her and and started to consume more and more the way that she consumes, and I started to feel better about it. And and I had always been a huge consumer of animal products and, and meat. I loved meat as a kid. And I just sort of found that I didn't miss it as much once I broke the cycle and that I, I felt healthy. I felt good. I always felt, I never felt sort of bloated or I guess really sort of exhausted after oh, gee. yeah after consuming um, meals and and so i've been able to to maintain that since and and i've really enjoyed it and and i, I think that for me it's about getting as much information about what is out there benefits uh, the cons to it and then making an informed decision based off what suits me and and i think that for me I, I recognized that I was just con- I was consuming far more animal products than I needed to and and I didn't actually need to do it and and I felt better when I stopped. And, and you say you felt better did it did it change
0: how you felt I guess on the football field or or afterwards like in the rooms you know that or the next day
1: after a game? I felt that I just because I never felt like full or exhausted after meals, um, I always bounced out of bed, felt like I recovered. You know, I recovered well. I didn't feel like I was heavy. I felt like I was lean, and
0: that I wasn't carrying extra extra weight. And I guess, you know, the game seems to be any faster every year. So
1: yeah, probably a positive thing. Yeah, for me it was, and I was always really conscious about weights and things like that. And it was because uh, I was naturally more heavier set, so it was important to be at a really fine balance. And I was lucky that the dietitian at the at the club at the time she was very receptive to it, and and we had a lot of our meals. For Prepared for at the club, and she was she had great variety in what she was able to give me, and and she was really knowledgeable on the right kind of things that I would need. and Do you, do you recall what sort of
0: foods, the main sort of foods that she
1: was serving up? we'd we'd have a lot of I'd eat a lot of you know sweet potatoes, dense sort of mushrooms, spinach, to, to substitute the the protein yeah. and things like that. Um, but I liked to keep like I love cooking as well, so. Um, my mum was a, is an excellent cook, and all my sisters are, are really good cooks as well. So, um, we would do a lot of home meals and things like that, with a lot of vegetarian bowls and yeah. a lot of beans, a lot of lentils, and that I felt was was giving me enough sustenance through the year, and and I felt like my body was recovering well.
0: And were were any of the your teammates, you know, intrigued by Job's new way of, <laughs> of, of feeding himself? Did they think that you'd gone away for a year and? Gone a little bit mad or <laughs> what, what, so. what <laughs> tell us about what they were what they were thinking and saying to you.
1: Yeah, I think that initially they thought I'd just um, I'd gone to New York and lost myself a little bit. Spent a bit too much time in Williamsburg. That's right. I was too much of a hipster or something. <laughs> but uh, Williamsburg's all been gentrified now, there's no hipsters left. <laughs> um, but they they were intrigued by it. Yeah, they were sort of what what is like, what's the meaning behind it? And, and do you feel different? Why are you doing this? And, and I just said to them, listen, you should, you should go out and make your own decision. Like, I like it. Doesn't mean that you will. And you don't have to do anything that you don't like or you don't want to do or you don't feel like it's the exactly, best yeah. for, for your own preparation. I remember having um, really good discussions with some of my teammates who, who just sort of said that what they, when we were talking about it, what they recognised was that they were consuming the levels of animal products that they were consuming was probably too far geared to Skewed. yeah, yeah. To, and that w- they needed to realign or bring or they wanted to they wanted to bring it back so that they didn't feel like there were three meals a day without eating processed meat or something like that and and they thought that that was a better way of for them that they needed to to come back to more of an even where it maybe meat was once once a day or once every two days or something like that and is that something
0: that you think more and more afl players will look to do instead of sticking to that traditional meat every single or meat animal products type meal every single meal of the day
1: i think that what more and more people are doing as information is becoming Easier to access, more and more people are informing themselves and then making making their decisions based off more information and being better and being better informed. Whether or not more players do this, I think that there'll be there will start to be a shift. But what I do think is that that more and more players will have an awareness about what perhaps the benefits are and maybe what the the negatives are. And therefore they'll be able to make a decision based off their own information that they've gathered, I suppose you have to be careful where you're sourcing that information, right. but they will certainly be more inclined to say, oh no, I'm, I'm making this decision based off my own beliefs or my own information that I've gathered rather than what someone's just telling me to do. And and I guess that information
0: will also flow down from nutritionists within the club and doctors and, and why not also becoming you know more educated and looking to the science and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I know the the listeners, particularly the Australian listeners, will will want to touch on what it felt like to to first win the Brownlow Medal. You won that in 2012, which is the greatest individual award that the game offers um, for the player who is the you know the most consistent, best player across the year and fairest. And, you know, unfortunately, with with what transpired in the 2012 season, the AFL felt the need to take that medal back. But in saying that, a number of people still obviously look at Joe Watson as the the rightful winner of the 2012 Brownlow, regardless of where the medal sits. What What was that like personally? Was that a really tough thing for you to go through? Or, you know, being more of an individual award, was that a little easier to swallow than, say, the team suspension?
1: I suppose touching on on what it was like to go through it, I think that you know having you know, handing the handing the medal back, I guess it was more symbolic of of, of handing actually handing the medal back rather than an admission of guilt you know like myself and the teammates, we'd exhausted every avenue we could have because we didn't believe we were guilty now. It almost became untenable from a uh, optics viewpoint that I should keep the medal after being um, suspended. Um, so I could understand why there was the need to hand it back. It didn't change, you know, like how I felt about it. And if it meant that it made other people feel more comfortable with it and it maintained the integrity of what the medal stood for, then I think that that was and it was an important thing to do because you know the medal stands for fairest and best and if and if people's minds that they believed i wasn't the the fairest player that year then what what that does to the validity and what the medal stands for i think the, that tarnishes it and and therefore i think the right thing to do was to hand it back it doesn't change how i feel about it but it's not always about you with that in
0: mind, and, and coming back to the club and, and playing one last season there, where do you see yourself fitting in the in the coming years in terms of being involved in the, either the Essendon Football Club or just the AFL in general? Is it something that is of interest to you, or you know, a lot of players say after their career they they, they will move away from football. What's that going to look like for Joe Watson?
1: At the moment, I'm really enjoying being out of football and I've made a concerted effort to remove myself from it only because I just feel like I'm yearning for new information, new experiences, new challenges. And I think that for me to develop, I can't be looking in the review mirror and I want to be looking forward and and I want to be doing things that are new and I want to have, be having new experiences and I want to be gain, gaining new knowledge. And I think that if I want to go back into football, because I really want to be in there, not because you know it's easier to stay in there or you know you're able to earn good money by staying involved in it, I don't think that that's going to be fulfilling for me in in the short term. And and what is going to be fulfilling is new challenges. And I think that if I go back into football, I'll know it's because I really want to be involved in it. And I think it's important to, well, it's important for me anyway to have that time
0: away from the game. Do you feel like this, that decision and that sort of perspective on things, looking through it from that lens is a result of, of having a year off before your final year or would have this been that your pathway anyway, had you not been
1: suspended and sort of had time to think? I'd like to say that this would have been my pathway, but I don't think it would have. I think, I think it was, it really was instigated by getting a greater perspective and having that year off what it was able to give me it was able to give me that level of perspective of what else there is in the world and and that i think has been really fulfilling for me to be able to discover that and i've really enjoyed going through that process and now i feel inspired by what else is out there you know and and tackling those challenges and failing at them, you know and and then but but it's still having them and still trying them and learning and, and still learning and and I think that that I, I'm not afraid anymore to pivot and be a novice at something you know and I, I think that that is that's an important important uh, mindset to have for development, so specifically speaking you've you've got a number
0: of business interests let's let's start with with what you're doing in new york what's going to unfold for you in the coming year
1: yeah so at the moment um we've got uh, two hole in the wall coffee shops so they're based off um you know australians in particular Melbourne are very particular about their coffee and there's been off a coffee snob <laughs> <laughs> we are <laughs> but there's been a, a real i guess mini revolution about australian culture immersing itself in particular, um, New York and in America, and part of that has been through um, the way in which we prepare food and the way in which we consume food and and the style that we have and and our particularities about coffee and and so um, we've got two hole in the wall uh, cafes now. We just opened a, a restaurant called Sugar Mama down in downtown New York as well, and you know it's really nice to be able to. I guess, display some of Australian culture to the rest of the world. And also the kind of feedback that you get from people all over the world. And you know how multicultural place New York is, how much enjoyment um, people get from consuming an Australian um, style and, and Australian culture. And, and so that's been really, really fulfilling and, and really enjoyable to be a part of. Uh, we're looking at, at growing the business. The more more and more and trying to develop and and even pivot the business into a different direction now, which is another challenge. And then the second is, again, it's an Australian business that started in Sydney that's really uh, taken off in Australia and and it's uh, a fitness-based industry, uh, uh, F45 training, which is a um, 45-minute high-intensity session, uh, really community-based in training and, and classes. And so we've uh, we're about to open our um, store in um, Williamsburg on uh, on Grand Street um, down there, off uh, Bedford, just off Bedford, yeah. And uh, we're going to be having a, launching our opening up on uh, the 9th of June. So we'll be uh, I'll be over there for that. Very and, exciting, yeah. It's really exciting, and uh, and hopefully the same sort of response that we've had in Australia to that style of training and and that way of fitness is. Embraced into um, New York. I just want to double
0: back just quickly because we were you skipped from the coffee to f45, but I do have some coffee questions. Oh, sure. The Americans, the typical Americans that come past your coffee shops, are they are they intrigued? Is is the coffee experience that they get you know for the first time so different to what they're used to? What what's the feedback like there? And what is what's the sort of typical American coffee of choice that they're choosing compared to what we'd see in here in Collingwood?
1: Yeah. <laughs> the feedback's really positive, you know, and we, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, repeat customers and they, I think it's a little bit of a, a mindset shift at the start. Um, they're used to consuming like really large Portions of coffee. Ours is a bit more delicate, a bit smaller. Um, it's, not,
0: it's not the, the jumbo stuff. We're not say. getting
1: 20 ounce sort of size <laughs> <laughs> coffee cups. Uh, and, 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 and normally, you know, an American consumer will come in and, and look at it and say, look, I, I just want a regular drip. And we say, okay, well, we do a flash brew here, which is a little bit different. And you're more than welcome to have that. Or we offer, you know, we can do an espresso. We can do a magic for you, or a flat white, or something like that. And, and I think that they they try it and they say, "Oh, look, this is actually tastes a lot different." And and I think it's you know part of it is due to the portion, you know, like it's not the the level of espresso to milk. It's is, less, diluted. Is less diluted and and also you know the the quality of the the beans and things like that and and the roasting and then it's the methodology as well and, and how you serve it and and the the milk and and how it should be worked and things like that and the feedback is is really good and and I think that they're starting to get a lot of cut through through um, American customers and and you're seeing that with the the level of consuming and growth that Australian cafes are having. And it's, I guess the nice thing about having a, a restaurant as well is that there's a specific style in which Australians prepare food and the way in which they prepare for food. And, and now, you know, like smashed avo is, is a staple, you know, in New York that's right. uh, where it wasn't, you know, five years ago. And that's, that's Australian culture. You know, immersing itself in an American um, society. And that's, it's nice to see. And it's the what, what Australians um, have done with flavor and combining flavors and, and using um, different styles and methods. And we're, we're such a multicultural society here and we're such, Big influences from Asia, and particularly in Melbourne, you know, there's a huge Greek community and Italians and things like that, and that is reflected through the products that we make and and the flavors that we combine. and I think that there's now a real cultural association with that in coffee and food, and that is, I think, something that the American consumers are really enjoying. It's
0: very exciting, and um, I'm really looking forward to see how that unfolds for you and F45. Two last questions on on the topic of coffee. What is your go to coffee?
1: I'm a soy cap man. <laughs> is that is that one per day or how many? I'm two, um, and I, I, my my girlfriend will tell you that if I have three, then I start to uh, it's uh, it's not conducive to, <laughs> to a good home life. So two two's the limit. <laughs> two's the cap.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and we, we would need to comment today on on Anzac Day. The climate playing accident today. Give us your tip. And what the margin is likely to be,
1: as as we said earlier, if anyone does have the opportunity and has never seen a game of AFL football, or would like to, they should watch either watch a game or come to a game. It is it's the most amazing. Uh, there's a hundred thousand people in complete silence at the um, the last post and the bugle and and you can I remember hearing the thing you notice the most when you're on the ground in that silence is how the the flapping of the flag how much noise that makes and uh, when you look up and you see the, the flags there it's a, it's an amazing thing so I encourage anyone to to go to a game if they haven't I can't tip against essen i um, too too loyal so I think the Bombers I think it'll be really close so I think it might be under a goal maybe uh, five points. All right, Joe, Paul, I would like to
0: thank you very much for being part of the Plant Proof Podcast today. You've given up a lot of your time, so I'd like to thank you very much for that. You're a champion of the game and I hope I can get you back on the Plant Proof Podcast in the future. No problem. Thanks for having me. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.